All right. Well, good morning to everyone. If you are a guest, uh, welcome. My name is Chris, one of the pastors here. Uh, We are in a series on the Reformation. So this is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. So as a church, we're taking this month to just look at some key themes and teachings of the Reformation and sort of as a church that stands in the Protestant tradition, understand why we do that and why that matters. And so you uh, have joined us in the midst of this series. And this morning, uh, we're going to spend some time considering this topic of the church. Um, And this is, like a lot of these teachings, it's kind of like drinking from a fire hose. And so there's a lot to get through, and I'm going to try my best uh, to to summarize some things and get through some things. And so we got a lot to get through this morning. It's going to be a fun ride, so so hang with me. Um, So third century theologian Cyprian wrote this, you cannot have God for your father if you do not have the church for your mother. And so how do you respond to that statement? When you hear that, what, what is provoked in your mind and your heart when you think about this idea, I cannot have God as my father if I don't have the church as my mother? Now, as good Protestant evangelicals, some of us might go, hey, that is putting church membership over and above having a relationship with Jesus. I don't like that statement. Or, or maybe if you're here and you don't profess faith in Christ and you have some skepticism toward the church, you're thinking, hey, that's just typical Christian arrogance. And so there's something in this that, that we sort of kind of buck against. It's like, wow, that, that seems to be putting a lot of emphasis on the church. And, and it can almost sound incredibly self-serving coming from Cyprian, who was a bishop, and coming from church leadership. Like if a pastor or a, someone in church leadership makes that statement, it's like, yeah, you would say that because you want me to be part of your church. And so it is a strong statement, And Cyprian's assertion at the time of the Reformation 500 years ago was certainly the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. And they held this teaching primarily for two reasons. One, they had a particular view of how the church exercised salvation and worked salvation in people's lives and how they had authority over those matters. And then also they held to this teaching because they were pushing back and against anyone who would try to break off or oppose the church. And so I want to be very clear about something. Yeah, you can be a Christian and not be a member of a church. What makes you a follower of Christ is faith in Jesus, not church membership. But I think some of our recoil from this statement, uh, for us in the U.S., for us being sitting in Bellevue, Nebraska, is that we don't see the church as absolutely essential to our discipleship and our faithful following Christ. We live in a society where the fastest growing religious demographic is the nuns. Not nuns as in a Catholic order of the, the females follow. Not, not nuns that way, but nuns as in none, nothing. Those who claimed belief in God and claim to be spiritual but don't affiliate with any organized religious group. So they say, what, what religious organ group do you belong to? None. And some of you may identify this way. Some of you may say, yeah, I have, a, I have a walk with God. I believe in God. I have a relationship with Jesus, whatever that means. But I don't necessarily affiliate with a particular church or a particular religious group. And so what I want to do this morning is I want us to trace some of the contrast between Roman Catholic teaching and Protestant teaching, and not to go on some kind of anti-Catholic rant. This isn't beat up on Roman Catholic theology. 
But I want us to draw some of these contrasts so we understand the nature of the church and what it means to belong to the church because may it never be said of us, First City, that we underemphasize the church. But may we have a robust and biblical view of what it means to belong to the church and be a part of the church. And this gives us an opportunity to understand that better. So that is where we're going to go this morning. And here's three points uh, that I want to sort of trace and then make some application. So first, the foundation of the church, two, the authority of the church, and three, the power of the church. So let's first consider the foundation of the church. Now, this passage in Matthew 16, or yeah, Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20, um, has been interpreted in a number of different ways, especially this statement Jesus makes to Peter in verse 18, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. A lot of debate between Roman Catholic and Protestants, even debate among Protestants, because that's what we like to do, debate lots of things amongst each other. What is the rock that Jesus is going to build his church on? What is the foundation? And if we were sort of to summarize the three main answers that have been given, we could say these. One is that the rock is Peter. And this is the Roman Catholic position. Two, Peter and his profession. And three, it's just the profession Peter makes. And actually, it's Jesus is the rock. And so what I'm going to try to do is land us on number two here, in the, the, just so briefly, because there's a lot that could be said. And there isn't enough time to dive into all the complexities of each argument. So I'm going to try my best to provide a fair summary at the risk of oversimplification. So if you have a a point of disagreement or argument that you want to sort of pick with me, let's do that over coffee or breakfast or lunch. I'm sorry. I'm just admitting right now I'm probably going to leave something off and I'm going to try to be fair, but it might not happen. So the issue with answers one and three is that they underappreciate a portion of this text. So this is what So the Roman Catholic position is that the rock is Peter. So Jesus is placing Peter in a unique position of leadership through which the church is established and built. Yes, there's other apostles and they're sitting there with Peter and Jesus, but Peter is given a distinct leadership role and that those who would succeed Peter in this role sort of occupy this place of chief apostle, later to be known as the Pope. And the problem with reading this passage this way, one, is that it is a ginormous jump from what Jesus says to Peter to saying he's establishing one primary position of leadership over the entire church, and that is sort of the Pope. That's a big leap exegetically. But it also underappreciates the place of Peter's confession. Jesus, or Peter just confessed, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so this is one way to underappreciate the text, to just sort of look at Peter the man and not look at his confession as well. Another way to underappreciate this text, which is answer number three, and is a Protestant position, is that the rock is merely Peter saying, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, so the actual rock is Jesus. And so in some ways, Jesus is simply talking about himself. So, in some ways, this answer is an overcorrection of the Catholic position. No, it's not Peter the person. It's Jesus that's the rock, right? Sounds really spiritual and right, but what does the text say? We have to go, what does the text say? We don't want to overcorrect by going outside the text. And part of the argument that what Jesus is talking about is actually himself, and Peter isn't a part of the equation, is that they 
that there is some wordplay going on, that Jesus is engaging in some wordplay. So when Peter says, or excuse me, Peter's name literally means rock. So when Jesus makes his statement, we could translate it this. You are the rock, one kind of rock, and upon this rock, another kind of rock, I will build my church. And so what people who argue for answer number three are saying is Jesus is going, hey, Jesus, or Peter, you're, you're a little rock, but on a bigger rock, I'm going to build my church. The problem with this is there's, there's multiple issues. One, it's really weird that Jesus would make that statement. Hey, Peter, I want to just remind you how small you are, even though you just profess truth and you profess the gospel in a nutshell, but just you're small, I'm big. It just seems like a weird response. Second, it's a little too clever with the language. The words for rock here, if you, if you get into how these words were used in the original language, they're essentially the same thing. And so to try to say this is one kind of rock and this is another kind of rock is a little too clever, getting a little too clever with the language. So in many ways, answer number three sort of tries to make the text say more or say something different than just what the natural normal reading is going to be. So what this is holding up is that in some sense, Peter and his confession. So if the Roman Catholic position sort of underappreciates Peter's confession, this position underappreciates Peter himself and the role that he's playing. And so let's try to fully appreciate both pieces together. And let's kind of unpack this passage and show how both are in play. So in the passage, Jesus asks all of his disciples, who do you say that I am? He has this moment alone with them. He says, who do you say that I am? And now Jesus isn't asking this question because he's insecure, like an insecure boy going, hey, do you like me? No, he's asking this question because Jesus is establishing a community built around who he is, and he's clarifying something for them. And so Jesus is doing a work here to establish something. And with these 12... Jesus is reestablishing the location of the true people of God. God's people, God's assembly, which church literally means assembly, called out ones, aren't those who are following the Pharisees in the law. The true people of God, God's true assembly, are those who follow Christ. And, and so Jesus is establishing this assembly, and he's sort of saying, this is the foundation of the true people of God. So he asks him the question, who do you say that I am? And Peter steps forward as a representative of the disciples, meaning his answer is their answer too. And he declares, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter makes this declaration of the truth. He believes in who Jesus is. It sort of captures the essence of the gospel right there. And Jesus calls Peter the rock in response to this profession. And so in essence, Jesus is saying, Peter, I am going to lay a foundation in my church through you and your profession. You, he sort of has this tender moment with Peter saying, Peter, I'm going to use you in a powerful way. You're going to lay a foundation for my people. And, and so Peter has this sort of special moment with Jesus, but he's not establishing a, a sort of the, the papal authority. He's not establishing this position of the Pope. But what he is doing is he, he is establishing a foundation of men who had a certain profession and a certain authority, and they were going to go and teach and lay the foundation for the church. And so Jesus is saying, Peter, and to the other disciples, I'm going to use you in a profound and powerful way. 
You're going to carry my message. You're going to carry my gospel. And I'm going to use you to lay this foundation upon which I am going to build. And so scripture talks about men, about leaders being part of the foundation of the church. And so if you go to Ephesians 2, 19 through 20, this is what the apostle Paul says, talking about all who become Christians, all who follow Jesus. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, which is the church, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Those of you who are builders, you know the cornerstone is the most important piece. It sets the trajectory of the foundation. Everything is built off and around it. Cornerstone is out of place. The whole foundation is out of place. Every other stone set in the foundation is leaning on and supported by and in relationship to this cornerstone. And so these apostles and prophets, by their profession of faith in Christ, by their belief in the gospel, became the ones Jesus used to lay a foundation. Their teaching, the apostles and the prophets, is the authoritative teaching of the church, the teaching that has been captured in the word of God, the teaching that we follow. So we stand on the foundation of the apostles and prophets as we stand on the profession of faith given to them. Because where did Peter get this profession? How did Peter come to this conclusion that Jesus was the Christ, the son of the living God? Did he discover it himself? Did he make it up himself? Did he say, hey, this is my truth? I don't, and that could be your truth, but this is my truth. No. God the Father revealed it to him. An authoritative word came to him. Heaven spoke to Peter and said, this is the truth. And so for Peter and the apostles, as they held to that profession of faith, God used them to lay a foundation of teaching about who Jesus is. Ah, so when Jesus says to Peter, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter, you sit underneath an authoritative teaching. This isn't of you. This isn't from you. This is something given to you, something you need to steward, something you need to care for, and something you need to proclaim. And so the foundation of the church, while God uses, used apostles and prophets and men to build a foundation, that foundation ultimately is the word of God found in the gospel and the truth of who Jesus is. So that is the foundation of the church in a nutshell. <laughs> the authority of the church. So from the foundation of the church, we next need to address this question of authority. Jesus tells his disciples about the church. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And so again, going to try to do some summary here and try to do some justice to positions without oversimplifying. Now, keys are a symbol of power. Binding and loosening have to do with letting people in or shutting people out of the kingdom of heaven. And so in essence, the church has been given these keys, has been given the power to sort of declare who truly follows God and who is outside the kingdom. Now, in the Roman Catholic view, the keys of the kingdom are given to Peter and thus the Pope, all who would succeed him. And so the the keys are held by the Pope. And through the church, the Pope exercises the authority of these keys through the hierarchy and the the leadership structure of the church and so through the teaching and practices of the church. But it ultimately comes back to the Pope. And the church, the Roman Catholic church, wields the keys largely through 
the sacraments. And so if you remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about the place the sacraments had in the life of the church. And they were used to confer grace upon people. And so the, the sacraments are needed to receive the grace that ultimately leads to justification and righteousness before God. And so the sacraments of baptism washes away original sin. And then the sacraments of confession and penance and Eucharist and others are used to infuse grace into us that we might become righteous and then stand before God as a righteous person. And so the sacraments become important because they're the means by which we get the grace we need to grow into righteousness and have right standing before God. And so you can see why this would be very important for the church to hold on to these things. Because if I have the means of grace by which you need to stand righteous before God, then you need the church. And if the church bars you from these sacraments, it means it's barring you from the kingdom of God. And so the church, according to the Roman Catholic teaching, exercise these keys through the sacraments and the authority that they have ultimately traced back to the Pope. Now the reformers, in declaring that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, saw things differently. The keys of the kingdom are not exercised by the Pope and the church hierarchy and through the sacraments by which we get the needed grace to stand before God righteous, but through preaching the gospel. One enters the kingdom through faith in Christ by believing the gospel, and the church is the one who's been given that message and are called to steward that message. And so in, in that way, as, as the primary pro- proclaimers of the gospel, as the community that has been given the truth of the gospel, we hold out the kingdom of God for people. And we make this declaration, not because we invented it, but because it's been handed to us, that those who are in Christ are a part of the kingdom. The keys are also exercised through discipleship and church discipline. So if you go a few chapters ahead in Matthew 18, Jesus uses the exact same statement. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven in the context of church discipline. And so this statement, this authority, the church has been given authority to disciple people and if needed, remove them from the body as a means of discipline. Here's how the Heidelberg Catechism, which is a document of teaching that came out of the Reformation, talks about the keys. And it gives a really, really helpful summary. According to the command of Christ, the kingdom of heaven is opened by proclaiming and publicly publicly declaring to all believers, each and every one, that as often as they accept the gospel promise in true faith, God, because of what Christ has done, truly forgives all their sins. When we hold out this promise, believe in Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God is open to you. We're exercising the keys of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is closed, however, by proclaiming and publicly declaring to unbelievers and hypocrites that as long as they do not repent, the wrath of God and eternal condemnation rest on them. God's judgment, both in this life and in the life to come, is based on this gospel testimony. We close the door of the kingdom when we say, unless you believe on Jesus Christ and trust in him alone for the forgiveness of your sins, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. So in our proclamation, we are opening and closing the kingdom of God to people. And then those 
who, though called Christians, profess unchristian teaching or live unchristian lives, and after repeated and loving counsel, refuse to abandon their errors and wickedness, and after being reported to the church, that is, to its officers, fail to respond also to their admonition, such persons the officers exclude from the Christian fellowship by withholding the sacraments from them. And for us, that is baptism and the Lord's Supper. And God excludes them from the kingdom of Christ. And so this is the hard part of church discipline, that there are those sometimes in the church that have, for whatever reason, are in such unrepentant sin and refuse to listen to counsel and refuse to allow others to disciple them and correct them. And they stubbornly persist in their sin. And so the church has to come together and say, this person is no longer living in accordance with their profession of faith. And so we can no longer confidently say they are actually following Jesus. And so after appeal, after appeal, after appeal, and lovingly saying, hey, repent of that sin, turn from that sin, and people just stubbornly refuse, we have to say, all right, then you're outside the church, you're outside the kingdom of God because your profession of faith is not credible. This is a hard and heavy thing. But the church is required to do so. It is called to do so. Because discipleship is a serious thing. Keeping the church from false teaching and from sin is a serious thing. And so when Jesus hands the keys to the kingdom to the church, he expects us to use them. Use them wisely, use them humbly, but use them. We don't get to go, oh no, Jesus, I ain't going to exercise those keys. I don't care. You know, I know this person needs to be rebuked and this person needs to be discipled, but nope, nope, sorry, don't want those keys. No, we grab them by faith and use them as good stewards. And so the authority of the church is the proper proclamation of the gospel and discipleship. And the church is central because it is the community God has given the keys to. He's given the gospel to us to proclaim. And the reformers, while they disagreed with the Roman Catholic teaching that one could not know Christ and salvation apart from the church. This was to drive home the point that salvation is by grace through faith. It wasn't to minimize the church. The church and its proper authority is absolutely vital to both mission and discipleship. Here's what Luther said. Anyone who is to find Christ must first find the church. Not because Luther believed that salvation was only found inside the church through the sacraments. But this, how could anyone know where Christ is and what faith in him is in him unless we know where his believers are? So Luther, understand, this is where the gospel is present. This is where followers of Jesus are present. And so you need the church to know Jesus. This is the authority of the church. And now the power. Spoken of the foundation, the authority, and the power of the church. And here is where Roman Catholics and Protestants are in wonderful agreement. The church will not be defeated or destroyed. Jesus said of his church, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell, now this statement in the, in the original language is literally the gates of Hades, which is the gates of death. So the more precise statement here is the gates of death will not prevail. And, and in, in the context of this, what, what many scholars believe is what Jesus is trying to tell them is like, look, this community is not going to die out. You guys are going to die. Others are going to die. You may be threatened with death, but death will not defeat this church. It is going to live on in power. It is going to live on throughout generations and throughout eternity. But underneath that, even more so than that, is if what is, what is underneath death? 
sin and evil. Sin will not defeat the church. Evil men and evil spiritual forces will not defeat the church. Loss of religious liberty will not defeat the church. So Jesus is giving his disciples a wonderful promise. Like, look, no matter how much opposition you face, no matter how much mess gets in the midst of the church, no matter if they start killing you off, ah, the gates of hell will not prevail. Let's look at what comes after Ephesians 2. So we read, we read that passage about the foundations of the apostles and the prophets. I want to read that and then a little bit past that in Ephesians. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The Spirit of God dwells in the church, and where the Spirit of God is, there is life, there is freedom, there is hope, there is joy, there is love, there is restoration, there is healing, there is salvation. Why won't the church ever be defeated? Because the Spirit of God dwells here. That's our promise, church. That's the hope we have. That's the power that we have is the Spirit of God dwells in us. Because the Spirit of God dwells in the church, the gospel will be proclaimed and sinners will come to find faith in Christ. People will be added to the church and discipleship will be fruitful. Yes, it'll be messy, but it will be fruitful. The church cannot be defeated because the Spirit of God is an unstoppable, redemptive power that will finish all he has started. So the foundation, the authority, and the power of the church. And now I just want to make a few points of application here. First, put your faith in Christ. What connects you to the foundation is not your church membership. It's not your baptism. It's not participating in communion. It's not giving to the church. It's not being in gospel community. It's not serving on a ministry team. It's not all the trappings of the church That's not what connects you to the foundation. That's not what connects you to Christ. As important as those things are, if you are not connected to Christ by faith, then you are disconnected from Christ. You cannot earn, you cannot work, you cannot become a member of a church, and somehow that puts you in standing with Jesus. So let me put it this way. Union with the church does not put you in union with Christ. Union with Christ puts you in union with the church. And so put your faith in Jesus. Be connected to the foundation by trusting in Jesus. Turn from your sin and accept all Christ has done to pay for your rebellion and your pride and your sin, to set you free and to accept you into the family of God, to bring you in as a loved son or daughter, standing fully righteous, not because of anything you have done, but because you have the righteousness of Christ. So put your faith in Jesus and be connected to the foundation. Next, join the local church and give yourself to the local church. Like the foundation of the church means that what unites you to Christ is faith in the gospel and belief in Jesus and not membership, but being united to Christ does mean being united to the church. You cannot escape them. Look, the New Testament has no category for a Christian who is not part of a local church. Like, it's, it's a category error. If you were to ask the Apostle Paul, hey, tell me about what's it like to, what's it mean for a Christian not to be a part of a church? And he's like, 
What does that even mean? (laughs) Because to be united to Christ means you have been brought into a family. And we experience that family by joining and being a part of the local church. The church is central to God's purposes in history. He gave his church the keys to the kingdom and God intended the church to be a context for your discipleship. And so we need to come under the authority of the church. And when I mean the authority of the church, I'm not just talking about pastors. I'm talking about the community. Like, look, I am in submission. Even though I'm a pastor who leads this church, I am in submission to the community of the church. I have brought myself under the authority of the church. And if I go out of line, you all need to hold me account. And so we need to bring our lives under the authority of the church because God has given the church the the authority and the keys. And so we're called to submit to a local body. And also, you're never going to grow in maturity apart from the local church. Like some of you all, I love you. But you need to stop acting like the dude in the backyard past his prime shooting hoops by himself still thinking he's awesome. Here's what I mean by that. Guys by himself draining threes, thinking he's awesome. Put him in a game, what happens? And so you can think you're nailing it by yourself, just you and Jesus. And, and maybe the, the sort of the close, connected, controlled group of friends that you have, and you think you're nailing it. You think you're following Jesus in obedience, but if I put you in a gospel community or put you in a church where no, not everybody's like you, where people are messy, where things get really hard, how you doing then? So our discipleship will never be as mature as God intended if we are not part of a local church because the very fact that the church is messy, the church is complex, the church is diverse, is meant to grow us in maturity in Christ. And so we need the local church to grow. Men, we're never going to be as pure as humble, as self-controlled, as God has called us, apart from the context of the local church. Women, you're not going to be as pure and as self-controlled, as strong in your faith, as dignified as God has called you to be, apart from the context of the local church. It's the way God refines you through his community. And here's the other side. We need each other. Oh, we need each other, because here's what we do. When we recognize the sin in our own hearts, man, we shrink back in shame and we pull away from community. We pull away from from the things that God has given us to grow us. And we need each other to pull ourselves out of that shame. Uh, This was beautifully illustrated in a scene from This Is Us. (laughs) Y'all have been waiting. It's like... What, three or four episodes in, and you're like, when's he going to do it? Come on. I mean, this, we're due for a This Is Us illustration. Some of you have been keeping up on it because you're like, man, when is he going to use one? He's going to blow it, and he's going to give it away. So you've been keeping up. Good. This is from the first episode, so if you're behind that far, I'm sorry. <laughs> but if you've seen the episode, you know at the end. So Jack and Rebecca, the parents, they, the end of season one, they, they kind of had this, this, they separated for a time. And, and Rebecca's like come to her senses and she's going after Jack. And so she goes over, he's staying with a friend and she knocks on the door and he's, she's like, hey, we're gonna, I want to work this out. And Jack confesses to her that he's struggling with alcoholism. And he just has this moment of shame. Like, I'm a mess. I'm too broken. I, I can't be around you. Just, have you ever felt that? 
so broken by your sin, such a mess by your sin, you feel like, I I can't be around anybody. I'm destructive. And he kind of closes the door. And then she knocks on the door again. And he opens it and she goes, Jack, get in the car. You're coming home. We need people to say, get in the car. I, I don't care how messy you are. I don't care what your sin is. Get in the car. Because we're going to do this together. With the hope of the gospel, with the power of the Spirit of God, the power that He has given us, the promise, the gates of hell, sin, death, they're not going to rule. Get in the car. And sometimes we need those people to grab us and love us and not let us shrink back in shame. So we need the local church. Finally, love the church. And I know the church is messy. We're messy. And if you're a part of First City, you know we're messy. We don't hide that. We don't pretend. And I know the church has beaten up some of you and has hurt some of you. And I wear some of those scars too. It's very easy to be cynical about the church. It's very easy to criticize and go hard on the church. But let's be careful here because the church is loved. Jesus loves his church. Look, I'm a nice guy. I think I'm a pretty nice guy. But I will go from zero to rip your head off in 1.2 seconds if you insult my wife, if you insult my bride. Look, I know she's not perfect. I've been married to her for 10 and a half years. I know she's not perfect, but she's my bride. I love her. I've committed my life to her. Jesus feels the same way about his church. Yeah, she's messy. Yeah, she's not perfect yet, but Jesus loves his bride He died for his bride. He shed his own blood for his bride. He's at work to purify and make her beautiful. And so when we rag on the church, when we knock on the church, we're knocking on Jesus' bride. Jesus loves his church. And so for us to see, even in the midst of our sin, even in the midst of the mess, even in the midst of the way that we can get sideways in so many things, to be able to see God working salvation and redemption and restoration in us and through us, that he's making us in his image and making us more beautiful, that is how we arrive at loving the church. Is when we see how much Jesus loves his church and what the, the beautiful things he is doing in the midst of his church, that brings us to a place of love. Look, Luther, the reformers, They fought for the church because they loved the church. They even loved the Roman Catholic Church and those in that system. They loved the church so much they were willing to fight for it. And we are never going to love the church as we ought until we see the unconditional, redemptive, awesome love God has for his church. And this is the powerful thing about the gospel. Though we are broken, though we blow it, though we allow our preferences and affinities to sometimes hold sway, though we do not love and forgive as we should, though we have our own agendas, in the midst of all of that, there is the grace of God. There is the power of God working to transform us, working to build a community that holds out his glory for the world and proclaims the gospel and discipleship and calls others to believe in Jesus. So look, I don't want you just to see the centrality of the church or the authority of the church or the need to be a member of a church and look at all the frustrations that you see in the midst of it, and then just suck it up and grit your teeth and endure. 
What I want us to consider is that when the purposes of God in the midst of the church collide with all of our sin and all of our mess, it's not a place for discouragement, but it is a place to see beauty. It is a place to see the Holy Spirit at work. It is a place to see something powerful that God is doing. And we tend to focus so much on the sin and the failures of the church, so much on the negative, so much on the pain, but we miss the beautiful ways that the Spirit's at work. How we miss that men who were once slaves to lust and anger and greed are now self-controlled and dignified and sound in faith and love. That women now are reverent and not slanderers or gossips and they love their husbands and they love their families and they're self-controlled. Those who were once crushed by guilt and remorse over sin are set free to love and live in joy and peace. That those who have been beat up by circumstances can be welcomed in and loved and cared for. That those who feel outcast and alone now find acceptance in Christ and acceptance in a community that loves them. That those who fight despair and depression continue to get out of bed and keep moving forward in hope and faith. Church, do you not see the beautiful work of the Spirit in your own life and in your own sin and your own struggles? And those around you, I'd say, lift your gaze to where God is at work. Lift your gaze to what God is doing. How he loves his bride. How he loves us. How he cares for us. And so let me say this in conclusion. Man, I would love for you to be a part of First City if you're not a part of this church. Here comes the shameless plug for the foundations class. <laughs> Hang out with us and learn more. If you're committed to this church and you think, yes, I want to be a member, jump in. Give yourself to the church. Give yourself to community. Give yourself to discipleship. Give yourself to serving. If you're already a member, don't let that just be on paper. Let that be a real thing that you commit yourself to. The cause of the gospel, the cause of discipleship. Do your part in exercising the keys. But know that Christ calls you to the local church. And so we would love for you to be part of this church. But if it's not this church, there are plenty of other gospel preaching churches in this city. Find one. Join it. Be a part of what Christ is doing in this city and in this world. That's the foundation. That's the authority. And that's the power of the church. That's why these things matter to us. Amen?